what is the science of reading? What are leaders doing to accelerate reading achievement? We answer these questions and more in Science of Reading Leadership, Guiding Minds, Transforming Lives, powered by Just Right Reader. Hello and welcome. We are so excited to bring Dr. Matthew Burns here on the podcast today. Um, Matt is an assistant director of the University of Florida Literacy Institute and an award-winning scholar who has published over 200 articles and book chapters and national publications and has also co-authored or co-edited 15 books. Dr. Burns is one of the leading researchers regarding the use of assessment data to determine individual and small group interventions and has published extensively on response to intervention academic interventions, and facilitating problem-solving teams. And one of our favorite things about Dr. Burns is that he was also a practicing school psychologist and special education administrator before moving into academia. So Dr. Burns, Matt, as we'll call you, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We are so excited to have you. And I know my very first question is, as someone who was practicing in schools and in districts, tell us a little bit more about your journey from you know, school psychologist and special ed admin moving into the role of, of research and academia. Well, I, I, I loved being a practitioner. I loved working with kids directly. It was, it was a great job. Um, but I came out, out of grad school ready to, to change the world, ready to save the world, and learned very painfully that it didn't want to be changed or saved. <laughs> so, and so I, uh, uh, I learned a very difficult lesson that you have to operate within your, what I call a sphere of influence, obviously not my term, but, and within, your, within my sphere of influence, I realized I could help these few kids. I could help these, you know, people in this school, kids in this school. And I, I, I just kind of gave up and, and, and just focused on that. And I, when I did that, my sphere of influence started to grow. Also, neighboring schools were calling me and asking me if I could you know, show them what I was doing. And, and then eventually I kept growing. And I, I went into administration thinking that was how you could move your sphere even farther and quickly learned that that wasn't. <laughs> so I, As all administrators <laughs> have learned. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it, it was the answer for me because that, that wasn't my skill set. But then I went to a teaching university, got my PhD, and, and started at a university. I was very teaching-oriented and immediately felt this big shift in, in a sphere of influence and in training future, future teachers. But then after doing that for a few years, I realized research is really the way, if you want to help shape practice on a large scale, research is how you best do that. So, I, so I'm, I've moved further from working with kids that I still do quite a bit of, but, but loved as a day-to-day -day job, to doing research primarily because I, I want to help as many kids as I can. I love that. That is fantastic. You know, you talk about the idea of your teacher oriented. You love that um, being able to teach. And I think that that resonates with me so much because I absolutely love the process of teaching. So I want to know where this passion for literacy came from. Like, I hear you talk about this sphere of influence and, you know, targeting that. But where did that passion for literacy come from? Well, similar um, in that if you, you know, if you can't read, you're, you're not going to be successful. And I found that when I was a practitioner school psychologist, of course, I worked with kids with behavior disorders quite a bit. And every single one of them, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, every single one of them with whom I worked had very severe uh, reading problems. And we addressed that. And I've done that through research a couple of times as well. We found that the behavior problems got much better. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it was sort of the way I got into it. And then once you get, you get into it and realize it's such a fascinating thing to look into because it's so complicated. You know, I, love, I love the simple view of reading. And I talk about it all the time. But the simple view of reading really captures a great deal in a very parsimonious way. And when you have to, when you're working with kids, you have to unlock that mystery. And it's that search to unlock the mystery that's really fun. Excellent. So as a school psychologist, and I'm sure too, as a special education administrator, you worked a lot within MTSS models or maybe helped create those MTSS models. And I would assume that that's somewhat informed your research because you've written a lot about MTSS and response to intervention. And we would love to know um, more about what does the research say about providing reading interventions to students? Yeah, so I, I became actually involved in MTSS before it was a thing. Yes. My advisor in grad school was Jim Tucker, who was the state director of special education for the state of Pennsylvania, where the entire state went to an instructional support team model, which is, I would argue, is, a, is, a, is an MTSS framework, although, although some might disagree with me. But anyway, so when I was in grad, I'm sorry, when I finished grad school and started working in schools, we were, we were doing it, just didn't know that's what it was called yet. And so when it became law in 2004, you know, I, was, I, I, was, I was well positioned and, and got lucky. And the research we did, um, we have found that uh, we see positive effects both in individual student learning and in systems issues, like number of kids retained in a grade, number of kids placed in special ed, number of kids who passed the state test, all those types of things. But I will argue a couple of things have to, have, to happen, have to happen for this to be effective. You have to address tier one, you have to have good core instruction, and your interventions, your tier two, have to be targeted to what the kids actually need. And those two things can have can lead to a positive effect. Uh, just those two things on, on student learning. That's fantastic. It's really interesting. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about that whole idea of leveling students? Um, you talk about grouping them, and you know you talked here about the tiers of students. So what do you mean by um, accurately grouping those students, and why do you feel like that's so important? That's such a great question. So. Um, I've been on a couple of panels and conversations about this because we're seeing pushback now to small groups. And I think the reason being is that, so I think small group instruction is critically important, but I think the reason we're seeing pushback is for, for decades, the way we grouped the kids wasn't effective. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that we were doing small group instructions, how we were doing it. So if you take some kids and you give them some sort of measure that gives them a level of the reading, you know, a, a level L, if it's the final benchmark assessment system, a level of like 28 if it's DRA. And we group those kids. But what we're seeing is the level doesn't really predict the reading skill very well. And all these kids who are at an L or a 28 actually have very different needs within that one level. Mm-hmm. And so what we do instead is we assess the kid's skill. Are they, are they lacking basic foundational phonemic awareness? Are they, are they lacking basic foundational phonics? Are they, are they, they can do those two things, but they can't read fluently. Uh, so we look at those, that level of, I shouldn't say usually level, we look at that skill rather than level and use those data to drive our small group instruction and they just match it up. So if they need phonemic awareness, we do a phonemic awareness instruction or intervention within tier two for MTSS. If it's phonics, we do that. And, and that's when you see much more growth. When you are 
Putting students into a phonics intervention, is it important to get down to the specific phonics skill, for example, um, specific vowel teams or consonant blends? Is it important to get down to that level of skill for interventions? It is. So uh, you can <clears throat> use more broad estimates of, of phonics to sort of group the kids to start with. But yeah, absolutely. Once you start delivering the intervention, you really have to know where to start, exactly where to start for the kids. Uh, and it's okay if you have a small group and maybe some of the kids just need some review on this one skill, you know, digraphs or something, and, and these kids don't know it at all. You know, that's okay. But yeah, you should really get down to that level of specificity. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing like a lot of students who are presenting with dyslexia. Right. We're seeing a lot of students who across the board in our schools and, and we're seeing a lot of legislation that's being pushed down and really addressing this idea of dyslexia. So where does that learning disability fall within your research, fall within what you're seeing, fall within the strategies that we can use to support our students based on your, your research? So I, I credit this legislative movement to decoding dyslexia, which is a group of parents who are wonderful pe mm -hmm. people, really great things for kids. And I, and I love the work they've done and I've, I've partnered with them on, on some of it. Um, I, my only pushback is I'm not convinced identifying more kids with dyslexia is the answer. First of all, I don't think most kids who have reading problems have dyslexia. I think it's a very small thing to do, number one. Number two, identifying a child with dyslexia lets the school off the hook. Mm -hmm. Oh, now, we, nothing we could have done to prevent it. The kid has dyslexia. They're, they're just born this way. Well, no, had we actually done a better job perhaps of teaching them how to read, they wouldn't be at this point. And the, the things I think, I don't know if to be true, but my perception of talking to these parents are that that's really what, they were, what was motivating them. They want to get the schools to make a change, to, to start teaching reading more effectively. And I'm all behind that. So we found is we've done only a couple of things looking at this, but we found most of the tools that screen for dyslexia that are designed to screen for dyslexia do a very poor job. Oh, interesting. The fascinating. Yeah, the screener for dyslexia is still reading. Have the kids read to you. Like the, we found Dibbles. We studied Dibbles and there are certainly others, but we studied Dibbles. Uh, did much better job of identifying core deficits in phonological awareness, which is the hallmark of dyslexia, than dyslexia screeners did. Uh, so I still think the best way to screen for a, a reading disability is, is, to, is, is to assess reading. And so then do you, would you say that using the same strategies that you use for any other student would be the best strategies to use to support students with dyslexia? Yes. Um, I think form or, or, or um, focusing on their specific needs and teaching to that need, there's really nothing magical beyond that. Now, some kids with really difficult, you know, really low uh, reading skills or severe reading problems, yeah, they might need more repetition. They might, might need more, um, you know, perhaps more modeling, more, you know, there might be something we have to do to modify the instruction to better match that kid's needs. But we start with the baseline, which is making sure we're targeting what those kids actually need. And even kids with dyslexia, when we get to that level, we see much more growth. Matt, would you say, um... Obviously, you would use a screener or an assessment, like you mentioned, um, to determine students' needs. 
What have been the best practices you've seen to match intervention instruction with students' needs? And on a district level, how, what are some of the best systems that you've seen put in place to use this data to provide appropriate instruction? So, it's, uh, districts are doing this. We, I've been writing about targeting interventions for, for some time now. And I don't know if I could say, I don't think I said in the article what, which school it was. I won't say which school it was. Missouri, <laughs> that I knew quite well, um, I was talking about sort of targeting interventions with them. And they said, well, this is what we do. And they showed me the framework that they did. Now, they've never worked with me about it. They, you know, I had no connection to this, this project whatsoever. But it was really good. And they were doing exactly as just described. So basically every kid uh, received two screeners. They received like a star reading or, or map or some of those group administered reading comprehension measures and an, a, a curriculum-based measurement or, or a reading fluency measure. And those two pieces of data were a really good place to start. And if a kid had low, low comprehension and, and low fluency, then they might look at the accuracy percentage of the words kids read correctly. If they were demonstrating low accuracy, then we had to then they had to go look at actual um, assess decoding more, and they use a, a quick decoding inventory, and they had a phonemic awareness inventory as well. So so they were doing this and targeting the intervention. So we saw this. Well, hey, can we study it? And of course, we saw significant effects. We saw that the kids that got targeted did better than kids that didn't. So same interventions, same pool of interventions. Just this kids was targeted in these schools because they were doing a phased in implementation. These schools that were matched um, on many important variables, they didn't see the same level of growth because they were just picking interventions sort of not as systematic. And then, um, uh, so we saw, we, we saw, oh, and then, so the kids that, that were getting the target intervention drew at a rate that was consistent with the good readers. So the kids that got targeted intervention did, basically the gap between good reader and, and struggling reader at least stayed the same if not got smaller. Mm. But didn't get targeted, the gap got bigger. So it wow. did work. This was a whole, this was a good sized school district doing this work all on their own and, and seeing success. And I know lots of schools across the country that do that. So it's not difficult to do. You have to have a good PLC, a professional, okay. in my opinion, a professional learning community, a solid PLC model drives a good MTSS. This episode is brought to you by Just Right Reader. Extend phonics instruction, strengthen school-home partnerships, and accelerate reading achievement with take-home decodable packs from Just Right Reader. Personalized take-home packs make phonics fun and accessible for families. Every book comes with a video phonics lesson and writing pages to help readers reinforce their decoding and writing skills. To learn more, visit JustRightReader.com. Now, I've done a lot of work with school districts all over the country, and one thing that I have noticed is that we use a lot of acronyms and we use a lot of vocabulary that sometimes mean different things all over the country, to, and sometimes even within the same school and within the same district. So would you give us just some background on what you view MTSS truly is and what RTI truly is, um, just so that we can all have that same common vocabulary and understanding for the purposes of this podcast? Yeah, awesome. So we defined MTSS, uh, myself, Shane Jimerson, Amanda Vanderheiden, Hayden, Stan Dino, we defined it as a systematic use of assessment data to most efficiently allocate resources to enhance learning for all kids, right? So it's basically that. It's, it's, we do universal screening. 
and we, we have teams that look at the data and use the data to drive instruction intervention. Uh, and then we have interventions that match the need. Now, we don't define, I don't define tier one, tier two, tier three, as most people do. People define tier one, whole class, tier two, small group, tier three, one. I have lots of tier three interventions that are in small group, and frankly, some tier two interventions that are one-on-one. -on -one. Right. So I, I consider it to be the level of analysis needed to identify what the kid needs. So tier one, we do classified interventions. We just look at the screening data and say this class is low. That's it. Tier two, we will dive in a little bit, little bit more and say, wow, this kid needs phonics, this kid needs fluency, et cetera. But then tier three, we really dive in and say, wow, does this kid need more repetition, more modeling, more? Uh, and so it's the level of analysis to determine what the kid needs and occasionally level of resource to match it that really drives the, the intervention, uh, the tier of intervention. And then lastly, RTI and MTSS are oftentimes used as synonymous terms, right. but they're not. They are not. RTI is the is the process of using data from an MTSS system to identify uh, a, a learning disability. So RTI was born in federal law in 2004 when the federal law basically said uh, school can use a process that determines if a child responds to research-based interventions as part of the LD identification process. Mm -hmm. That's it. And but that was called response to intervention. And then we quickly realized that we can't do a response to intervention framework unless we have an MTSS already in place. So RTI uh, is the process of looking at the data that exists from your MTSS to identify SLD. You can't do RTI. Well, this will be fun. Speaking of TLAs, three letter acronyms, you can't <laughs> identify SLD without an MTSS. <laughs> right. You know, and as there's going to be so many educators, young, old, veteran, new, listening to this conversation. Um, school leaders, district leaders, and really all of your research comes down to the one question everyone's asking is what are the best ways to improve reading scores district-wide? What is the best way that we can do that? Yeah, that's that's uh, not an easy question, although it should be. <laughs> it's like and if you could answer it succinctly. <laughs> okay, so I'll answer it, I'll answer it succinctly. Uh, the one thing we could do is is really start using data. Like yeah. that's if there was one thing I could fix, it would be we would have. If there was one thing I could change, I don't want to use the word fix. One thing I could change, it would be getting PLCs, professional learning communities, really looking at student data, and looking at data that really assess how well a child can read. If if we just did that, I think we'd see a lot more positive outcomes. Just that one thing alone. Because the, the, the idea of teaching reading is, is a complex idea. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the, reason, as, the reason the simple view of reading works, it's a, it's a very parsimonious explanation of a very complicated thing. Uh, and um, Nell Duke, Kelly Cartwright, and I did that meta-analysis looking at the uh, active view of reading, and we found support for it. But but main finding, in my opinion, was we found like five to ten things that were affecting you know, teaching text, teaching phonics, of course. Yes, of course. But teaching vocabulary, teaching vocabulary was just as effective. Oh. Uh, teaching vocabulary, I think, is, is extremely important, especially for kids who still need help with reading. Uh, so, so teaching phonics, teaching vocabulary, teaching text structure, uh, teaching morphology, teaching, you know, there, there's, there's quite a bit to it. So the simple answer is we do a better job of using data. The, the more complicated answer is really dive into to student development, reading development and recognize that we should be focusing on these things at this age and these things at this age, and it's mm -hmm. never 
right? It's, it's always going to be more complicated than that. I love that. I love that. That was, that was really succinct. You did a great job with that, Matt. <laughs> Is, are there any common missteps you're seeing in terms of leading this this charge of science of reading. We have a lot of people who um, who listen to this podcast who are in positions of leadership, whether that's at the district level or the school level. And um, you know, we're all trying to make sure that we're leading our entire school district to to success and to be implementing quote unquote the science of reading um, with fidelity and effectively. What are some common missteps that you see in that leadership aspect? The science of reading movement has been the most positive change I've seen in reading since I've been doing this since the 1900s, right? I agree. So, <laughs> I agree. It's exciting. It really is. Good things are happening. But a couple of things that, that um, kind of concern me. Because science of reading is really a push to get, it's really, there's two sciences of reading. There's the capital SOR and the lowercase. The lowercase is the research literature that drives what we should do. The capital is an advocacy movement to get mm. to focus more on research-based approaches. That's my distinction. I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's valid or not, but that's that's my distinction. And the advocacy work is, I think, the reason we're seeing a change. The science has been there forever. And we've just right. not paid attention to it. It's the advocacy work that's really mattered. Now, because the advocacy work is really pushing to take the science and make it um, consumable, so it's getting it in the hands of people. We're seeing more blogs, more podcasts, more things like that, which is great because it's getting information out in a way that we never could before. Um, but we're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of people blogging things and we're treating it as it's got true, yes, fact, because it's, it's in a blog or something. So I think we have to be, we as practitioners have to be, because it's more available, have to be better at consuming the information. Uh, and so I, I do. I do wish we would do more of that. And, and I've said for years, I think it's unfair for us to expect teachers to read and consume research. Mm-hmm. We need to do a better job of getting the information to them, which is why um, you know podcasts like these, where you're interviewing researchers, is fantastic. That's why those What Works Clearinghouse IES practice guides, mm-hmm. the practice guides are fantastic. They're all free. Like those types of things are great. So I think we have to get better at finding those really solid. Uh, summaries of research and not relying so much on something, some, some blog or something, just because someone said it doesn't make it true. Matt, I am in a few science of reading Facebook groups and there is a Matt Burns who comments quite frequently and sometimes, you know, I think does a really good job of correcting misconceptions. Is that you? Uh, probably. Social <laughs> media. <laughs> I love it. I, but you are so right because we do have um, such momentum um, in terms of this advocacy group and uh, advocacy, I should say. And so the more people who are talking about it, obviously that gives um, more opportunity for further misconception and, and people to interpret things in different ways and spread spread things as truth that might not actually be. So I, I love that you are a part of those and um, advocating. Your, your voice cool. is definitely respected cool. there. Thanks. Well, it's, you know, I, I could write an article. You ever, you ever see the, the movie um, Good Will Hunting? Great movie. When, um, when uh, I forget the character's, the, the character's name. I'm surprised. Well, um, Will, Will Hunting. When he, meets, when he meets Robin Williams' character, he says to Robin Williams, I read your book. And Robin Williams' response was, oh, that was you. That's <laughs> such a great response because, you know, I could write an article or a book and, and it might 
a couple people might read it, certainly. But I put something on on this Facebook group that has a 200,000 followers. And they listen. Naturally, more people will see that than any article I've ever written. So so I think that's a really uh, great way for us to get uh, to have direct communication with practitioners. But people have to remember, most of us, myself included, researchers are not good communicators. And someone says something on, on Facebook, and, and I used to be, I've gotten much better at it, um, I've learned. And uh, I used to speak like a researcher. No, that's not true. Whatever. Very blunt, <laughs> you know, and, and, and people would be, say, you know, would be offended. Let's just say that. And that's what I learned eventually. And, and uh, uh, Donna, the, the founder of the, of the Science of Reading, I should have learned in college, Facebook page, whose name I can never pronounce, uh, Donna. <laughs> Manic, something like that. I'm really sorry, Donna. She taught me. She took me aside through a Zoom conversation once and said, you're talking like a researcher. That's not going to work. You can't do that. So practitioners have to remember when you talk to researchers, we're not good communicators. Uh, and uh, we have to remember that we're not good communicators and put on a, a filter when we're talking to practitioners. <laughs> My favorite is, you know, because your Facebook profile is just Matt Burns um, to the public. And so every once in a while, I, I will follow a thread where someone is trying to potentially argue and then somebody else will pop in and be like, guys, it's Matt Burns. He's literally from UFLY. <laughs> and then, and then they start and then the to- the whole conversation goes, oh. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Matt, are there any um, current research? You know, we know the science of reading is is decades old. There, you, like you said, there's been a ton of research for a very long time. Is there anything current that's happening or any um, developments in the field of reading um, that you find particularly exciting or promising? So that's, that's a great question. Um, I think practically we're seeing a lot more research now on morphology in language and its implications for learning, which I think is really great. And, and that I think is, is fairly new. We've always known language played a role, right? But but, but this, this focus on more uh, specific things like morphology, I think has been fantastic. And I think we'll see more of that. Um, I think we're now understanding phonemic awareness better. And uh, um, we've seen some fads come and go in that. And I think research has responded to those fads and, and hopefully the fads are, are now going instead of, of coming. And we're moving more towards better understanding a better, a more sophisticated understanding of language's role, and we're seeing more morphology. So that I think is is really exciting. I think we'll see more work along those lines. Um, I think we'll see more work now from from a very practical perspective. I think we're seeing a lot more theoretical work, which to me is exciting. To others may not be. To, so we can eventually really understand reading better because it's kind of amazing. We really do. We understand it, um, but there's still a lot to learn. And so we're seeing more of that research too. So we're seeing more research now that's really for, focusing on on what we can do and, and focusing on how to understand it better. And then of course, this decoding dyslexia has made studying reading disabilities really uh, exciting as well. So those are some positive things I've been seeing. Awesome. Um, if our listeners wanna learn more about your work, what are the best places to send them? I mean, other than Facebook to follow you, <laughs> you know, follow you around and watch all the amazing things you drop on your Twitter or X, I think is what it's called now, right? But um, if our listeners really do want to learn more about your work, where should we send them? Well, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, and my, oh, if you just go to YouTube and search Matthew Burns. Now, I started it during the pandemic. And the reason I started it was uh, people weren't sure. I, I was seeing in social media, I, how do I reach these kids? How do I work with these kids through through Zoom? 
And I didn't have an answer. So, so I just started playing with it and testing it out and thought, okay, this will work, this will work. And, and so I went on and created a YouTube channel where I would demonstrate how to teach phonemic awareness through Zoom, how to do fluency building and all these types of things, how to do assessments. And people seem to like it. So I, I started doing two more things. I, I, I'll put videos on there that demonstrate um, uh, interventions, model interventions. Oh. And also I'll put videos on there. If an article comes out that I think is really cool and I want practitioners to, to see it and understand it, I'll call the author and say, hey, let me do a 15, 15 minute interview with you. You, you, well, you, you explain the implications for practice and, uh, and you know, it's, it's short, it's pretty easy. And so that's on there as well. And then occasionally I'll have a video recorded lecture or something I might put on there. So that's a good place, my YouTube channel. Um, you know, if you also, I'll, I'll send my, the, the listeners to uh, press. If you go to presscommunity.org, so it's P-R-E-S-S, press. Press was a, a reading program that I helped author with, with uh, Lori Hellman, Jennifer McComas, and some other people in Minnesota. And it was a basically a way to, to build an MTSS. Uh, and we did that in around 2010, and it turned into this great project. And now it's this fabulous website. And I don't get royalties, so if I, so if you go to, <laughs> I'm not getting royalties. We decided not to get royalties, which is a decision I regretted, but still, it's there. Crestcommunity.org. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have uh, uh, there, there's some information there that represents the work I've, I've done as well. And then I'm gonna send listeners to Google Scholar. Yes. So I wish more practitioners would would use Google Scholar. Well, see on Facebook, someone will post, you know, hey, any research on this? So I'll go to Google Scholar and put it in, and I find five things, no problem. Yes. Uh, so so I wish our listeners would, would try Google Scholar. Now, you're going to get articles you probably don't have time to really read and stuff, but at least you can see, oh, yeah, there's five studies on this. Like, that's at least a first step. So I'm going to uh, hopefully Absolutely. people I did that, in fact, to prepare for our interview today. I Google scholared your name and got a whole host of, of wonderful research right at my fingertips. Cool. Fantastic. <laughs> Look, again, the Robin Williams, Robin Williams was supposed to be, oh, that was you? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was the one Google Scholar search. <laughs> oh, boy. It's too funny. Well, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with, with us and our listeners today. We know that we just have um, thousands and thousands of leaders across the country who are wanting to make sure that they are doing everything they can to accelerate reading achievement for the students across the U.S. And so we truly appreciate um, your contribution to the field and, and sharing that with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for, for having me on. This was This is fun. Now, before you go, we have um, two questions or a question that we always ask all of our listeners or that we're going to. And that is, what are two things that you they can do or we can do to accelerate reading achievement? So two things, well, I've kind of already said them, so I'll restate um, maybe more um, pragmatically. So <clears throat> two things, number one, uh, regardless of your intervention or small group instruction. I, well, one thing would be small group instruction. So you have to have, I would, I, would, I probably would never argue against it and wouldn't argue against whole group instruction. Like the, you have to have that, of course, but I th still think small group instruction is really important. So one, do small group instruction and two, use data to focus it. So assess comprehension, fluency, phonics, and, and phonemic awareness. Find the most fundamental skill in which the kid still needs development still needs to grow, still still shows holes, and, and focus your small group instruction there. I think if we just did that, 
we'd see a lot more growth. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. If you found this conversation valuable, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We will see you next time on Science of Reading Leadership, guiding minds, transforming lives.